I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now, to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory for ever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected, and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety.
You know, I want to tell you a story of a household that is fantastically tragic. Uh, it's fantastic because it has the elements of being marvellous. Uh, do you like chocolate? I like chocolate. This is a household of chocolate. Uh, this is a household of a family that was able to find success. Imagine you're a family that starts your own business. And your business grows and is so successful that a hundred years later it is still known in Australia. It's popular and well-loved because your business is chocolate. And imagine, here's where the story's fantastic even more so, imagine if this is not your family, in fact your family hasn't turned out so well and you're alone. But this family that has started a chocolate business adopts you in and now you're part of the very successful Australian chocolate retailing business Daryl Lee Chocolate. But here according to the documentary I watched the story turns a little tragic because it's fantastic as being adopted into a successful chocolate factory could be. Here's what Mrs Lee of the time let every single adopted child no. You are adopted. You're not really part of this family. You will inherit nothing, but you are lucky to be here. You see, Mrs. Lee, busy as she was with her husband in the chocolate industry, ran what she called the two dogs theory. They had a number of children, and so she figured if she adopted a child of the same age of each one of her kids, the two kids, like two dogs, would keep each other occupied. And the adopted child was always, always knew their place. You are here to serve the amusements of the biological child. Fantastically tragic. And I share this story with you to put something of a contrast of what it is to be saved into God's household. As Paul continues this letter to Timothy and God speaks to us this morning, Paul tells the story of being rescued, being saved, being adopted into God's own house. Listen to these words from verses 14 to 16. Paul says, The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his, un, his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now, here's the crazy, amazing thing with this. The, Paul is telling us that his life is an example for us to know and understand. So let's know it and understand it. Paul wants us to understand that the only way he was brought into God's house, and the only way that you and I can be brought into God's house, is through grace and mercy. In verse 14, he speaks of the grace of our Lord. What is grace? Grace is when you are given what is not your right. When you're given love, you're given favor that you have not earned. 
In verse 16, he speaks of mercy. What is mercy? Well, mercy and grace are not the same. Whilst grace gives you what is not yours, mercy holds back what's coming to you. And so you might say, perhaps in the Daryl, there was mercy there as some, some kids who had lost their families they were brought into a family that was abundant and they didn't get what was coming to them. But it sounds like there wasn't a whole lot of grace. It was a, you're lucky to be here and you get nothing else that you haven't earned. But in God's household, there's mercy and there's grace. You don't get what's coming to you and you are given what you haven't earned. Paul wants us to understand, Paul wants Timothy to understand, Paul wants everyone to understand this example, that this is the only way to enter into God's house. And why is it the only way to enter into God's house? Well, because entering into God's household and God's family is a matter of the character of God. Verse 16, the gracious and merciful one in verse 16 is described as the one who displays his immense and in some translations unlimited patience. Mums and dads, how many of you are mums and dads of unlimited or immense patience? I'm not one of them. But Paul wants us here to understand this trustworthy saying. It is by mercy... It is by grace, and it is according to the unlimited and immense patience of God that anyone can become a part of his family. So it is for Paul, so it is for Timothy, so it is for me, so it is for you. Sadly, it was not the case for the adopted Lee kids, but Paul wants us to understand that in God's family, we're all equal because we all come in in the same way. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've become, no matter how much you've achieved, Paul says, look to the trustworthy saying, it is only by grace and mercy and the salvation that is in Jesus that we can be members of God's household. He tells us this is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance. I know there are other issues in the reading we've heard this morning that will be very loud in our ears. But if we are to take Paul and to take God at his word, then this is where we must park ourselves for a moment. To understand the grace and mercy of a patient God and to confess our trust in that and that alone as the way that we enter into God's household and indeed into God's family. And it is indeed into God's family. Because for Paul, he is saved into this household, but he's not saved as a guest or a tenant in the house. No, he's made a son. He's made an heir. He is adopted and he is appointed a role. Now, no one likes doing the lawns. Sorry, I don't like doing the lawns. Few of us want to do the dishes. But when you belong to a household, you belong to a family, there's a role for you. There's a duty to be done, and though it might be tiresome and labor-intensive, you know that it's the right thing for you to do because you belong. And so Paul, despite what he may have been, he describes himself as the worst of sinners, God has a role for him because he's not a tenant, he's not a guest, he has been adopted. Verse 12, he explains, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, 
who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. And again in chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says, And for this purpose I was appointed a herald, an announcer, and an apostle, a sent one. I'm telling you the truth and I'm not lying. Paul's life is an example of being welcomed into God's household as family. Despite the fact that when Paul was first saved, and worthy of our noting in our time, some thought it was quite dangerous for a man like him, with the reputation he had, with the mixed views on how safe he was to have around, some thought it might not be a great idea for him to be included in God's household. You can read about that in Acts 9. Timothy, like Paul, is also adopted and appointed. Not a guest, not a tenant, but as one who is trusted in Jesus, he is considered family. He is brought into God's household. And because he's part of God's family, there's a role for him in the household. Verses 18 to 19, Paul says to him, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you... I made Paul sound kind of British then. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them you may, here's his role, fight the battle well, holding on to the faith with a good conscience that some have, which some have rejected, and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Timothy's been adopted and appointed with this role to battle. Strange language. Uh, we don't often think of Christian leadership as battle, but Paul does, and Timothy does, and most experienced Christian leaders will tell you that there is an area of battle. Why would you battle? That doesn't sound like fun. Because this is your family. This is your home. This is a place. This is a God. This is a gospel worth contending for. And so sometimes Timothy and others will have battles of in-house battle. You might think, oh yeah, it's against the world. No, no, this is about leading the household of faith. A household that has always been on edge. There'll be politics, there'll be policies. There'll be battles of orthodoxy. What's true belief? And I I confess that uh, as the Bible says in these last times, some will abandon. I, I worry for this at times where churches become liberal. And don't take hold of sound theology. There'll be battles for values. There'll be battles over authority. Battles over the church's purpose. Battles over money. (laughs) Battles over COVID. Battles over vaccinations. There'll be abuse, abuse of both members and leaders. And there's always the threat of the deceit of the evil one. Timothy and every Christian leader is called to battle called to contend but how you contend matters Paul says to Timothy you'll do this holding on to faith and a good conscience holding on to faith and a good conscience means for Timothy means for me means for you how you battle matters as much as what you battle for the two go hand in hand in godly leadership The point here in the life of Timothy, the life of Paul, and even the life of Jesus is that when you're in God's household, you're not saved as a guest, you're not saved as a tenant, you're saved to be a family member by Jesus who came to save and bring us into God's family. And family members have 
roles. And Paul starts to speak to these roles of the family in chapter 2. Here are the home duties that Paul starts to speak of for the household of God. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, and I'll read a little bit of this. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul speaks to the household of God, to the church collective, and says, you must have a concern for the broader community. What is he saying? Household of God, be good neighbors in your streets. Even with the weird guy down the road, be good neighbors in your street. God's church should function well in broader society. God's church has to have a concern for broader society. If I was to summarize verses 1 to 7, I think Paul is saying you should be a prayerful community. You should be praying for uh, the broader society. You should be, as we read in other parts of Scripture, a priesthood. What does a priesthood do? Well, priests are intercessors between God and people. And so God's household is to represent God before people and represent people before God. How do we do that? Well, we represent people before God by praying to God, by bringing all people before God in prayer. How do we represent God before people? Similar to Paul, we have been appointed as heralds, as announcers, as people who speak of our God, as people who live like our Saviour as people who represent our God and what he stands for before others. A household duty for us is to pray and to represent and to announce and share the good news about the God who saves according to his immense patience because of his grace and mercy. This is about how a church responds to the world around it. And I once had it described with a couple of different metaphors. And I thought these were useful, so I'll share them with you. How will we think of God's household, God's church? Over time, some have thought as church, and I think this is quite popular in our time, church as a mirror. Church is like a mirror to the broader culture. And of course, this comes up as we will deal later on with the issue of uh, how women participate in, uh, in ministry in church. Church's mirror is where we think, well, let's commend to society. Let's just look like everybody else. That way there'll be no battle. Let's be like them, inclusive to all, friendly to all, agreeing with all, and do it in a really wonderful way. And then everyone will want to be just like us. We'll be just like them. And life will be nice. But that's not what God's called us to do. He's called us to stand out and not to represent and reflect broader society, but to reflect him to broader society. Sometimes church can look like a bit of a parasite. We as an organization, an organization like Fig Tranglican Church, are gifted advantageous position in our society our government is kind to us sometimes we want to say oh they're so rough with us and things like that no they're actually quite kind to us in a number of ways Uh, 
Some of the ways that our, our tax law works is advantageous because they recognise that we as a group should be of a benefit to our broader community. Sometimes there's a temptation in churches to take the benefits that we are given by a broader society and to give nothing back. To think that church might operate in your four walls. But it doesn't. That's parasitic. That's to take what's given by society and to give nothing back. Sometimes we think of church as like a bomb shelter. You know, as we think about how depraved and how problematic the world has become, we think, well, if we just huddle together, those of us who are like-minded, think the same, trust in the same Lord, if we just huddle together and wait for Jesus to return, everything will be all right. I want to say, I don't think that's as safe as some might think, because amongst the huddled together, soon enough there start to be quarrels and arguments as someone doesn't seem to agree with everything you agree with, and maybe they're just not as safe as you thought they were. And we forget our responsibility to represent God to a broader world. So what should church look like? City within a city. A community of people who shine lights to the broader city. That house in the streets that is its own household, but is a blessing to the entire streets. That shines light and love and care to the entire street. The neighborhood watches, you might say. God's church is to be a city within a city, a light on a hill, helping, praying for, representing God to, and announcing God to a broader community. This is the household responsibility Paul is giving us in chapter 2, as those who have been saved, not as tenants, not as guests, but as family. Paul turns his, intention, his attention to what happens within the house and he speaks specifically to the two binary genders of men and women. He speaks to men in verse 8. This is what should happen within the church. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want... Yeah, sorry. Uh, Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Paul is calling men to be men of strength. Despite what you might hear, strength is not bad. Uh, Too many of us have bought into the philosophy of Homer. Homer Simpson, that is. To be a lazy couch potato who doesn't lead anybody but simply just exists. There's language in our world that I don't love about toxic masculinity. I don't understand enough about it, and I think it just muddies the waters, but I have understood that there are some good things and some bad things to come out of the conversation. Some of the good things are to be mindful of how strength is used. Some of the bad things are where it almost seems shameful to be strong as a man or to be masculine whatever that might mean. So maybe I can describe what I think is going on and what I think shouldn't go on in this way. Have you ever looked at a lion? You know, king of the jungle. Big mane, glorious looking animal, powerful and strong. And absolutely what you don't want to be as a man. Lions seem to lay around in their strength doing nothing while the lioness does all the hunting, looks after the pride, makes sure everything functions. When does a lion get active and use his strength and start to roar? 
when there's food, territory, or sex available. Then all of a sudden, he's the lord of the jungle. His strength is used for his own purpose and rarely as an act of service. Apologies to any lions watching. That's just what I've picked up from the documentaries. Paul says to the men of God's household, be strong. How do you be strong? Lead in prayerful dependence. There might be a temptation among you to use your strength and your ability to intimidate and to force your will in lifting up your hands in battle, quarreling or anger. But he says, no, lift up your hands. And he's not prescribing a necessary prayer posture, but he's saying your hands, rather than being lifted up in battle or, or, or disputes, Show your strength in leading God's people, in leading the household of God to prayerful dependence upon the God who saves according to his grace and mercy because of his immense patience. Make sure your church continues, the household of God continues to rest upon God. It's not okay to be Homer Simpson. It's not okay to be a lion just lounging around. Your strength, your capacity to lead, your capacity to influence is something God has given you to encourage the people of God toward God to be prayerfully dependent upon him. And I'm personally rebuked by this as a man who does not do enough of it. Paul also gives his attention to women. And in verses 9 to 10, he says, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Paul's instruction is, clothe yourself, women, with good deeds. In the same way that he speaks to men who have a number of traits that they might use for their own advantage, Paul, I think, is saying to the women, use your strengths, whatever they might be. In this case, I think he's pointing to beauty and aesthetic strength. Maybe your beauty is not for you, and your beauty is not in your outward appearance, but your beauty is in the good deeds that you do before God. Now, I'm ill-equipped to speak to the women about what to not wear and all that sort of thing. But what I'm pretty clear on here is that perhaps this is less about the items and more about the attitudes. Paul is encouraging the women here to have an attitude of understanding that you are precious to God. You matter to God. You've been saved according to his mercy and his grace. What you believe matters. How you act upon that belief matters masses your beauty your worth is in the good godly deeds you walk in perhaps a historic narrative says your appearance is your worth to us that comes up from time to time in the scriptures but God says now the sacrifice of my son that makes you a royal heir is your worth to me so clothe yourselves with the deeds that express God's worth to you. Paul goes on, and it would appear that he's speaking to women in verse 11, and he is, but perhaps there's a part of him speaking to everybody. I'll explain what I mean. Verses 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. 
I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness, and propriety. Now, as we first read those words in our time, and particularly through our cultural lens, they can be hard to take in. And you might think, well, why has Paul got this, this strong word just for women? Well, it's actually a word for everybody. Let's go step by step. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Now, already, there's something that women are being told to do, not something they're being told not to do. What are they being told? To learn, to exercise as disciples and co-heirs with men of the salvation is in Jesus, that is in Jesus, to be disciples who learn the scriptures, who practice spiritual disciplines, who apply their faith because their faith and their life matters. Earlier in the book, Paul had said, have nothing to do with endless genealogies. See, once upon a time, a woman's worth was put in, is she married to the right husband? Is her dad the right guy? Has she descended through the right Jewish line? Here, Paul is saying, because of Jesus, there's a sexual revolution. It's not about the man attached to you unless that man is Jesus. So it's time to learn. You see, previously, a woman was not invited to synagogue. It was forbidden for a woman to be taught Torah or the the law of God. Now Paul is saying, Jesus has changed that and it's very, very important that you don't depend upon endless genealogies, but that you learn. So for these new students, how should they learn? Well, exactly the same way everyone else in God's household should learn, in quietness and full submission. Now, that doesn't mean utter silence, but it means that we put ourselves in a space, as I suspect you are now, where you are silent for a time and you invite a teaching elder to have the authority to bring God's word before you and you submit yourself to that word as it is expounded. So Paul's not giving a special instruction just to women. He's saying, look, everyone, this is the custom, should learn in quiet submission. Now you guys, you need to learn too and do it in the same way. He goes on. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now again, this is a tricky one. And before I tell you what I think about this, let me acknowledge a couple of things. One, those who look at this verse and say, well, here we are. The scriptures are clear about women's roles in ministry. The truth is by saying this is clear, you either, you either show an ignorance or worse, you may be quite dismissive, suggesting to others that uh, this word is so clear that you're either too stupid to understand it or too disobedient to obey it. Are there many parties and social agendas that might influence how we read a passage like this? Some have claimed that our Sydney Anglican Diocese has a particular view on this. It has a view, but it is not a restrictive view. It's a view that allows senior ministers of local churches to do what seems best to them 
as they read the scriptures with full endorsement. So, what does it mean? One of the things that's also important for us to understand is that as a church, as an Anglican church, we actually have in our constitution, Article 20 says that we cannot interpret scripture in a way that will be uh, repugnant, is the language, to another part of scripture. And so that's very helpful as we approach 1 Timothy 2.12 that says, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume or to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. So what does Paul mean by this? It's difficult to say that Paul is saying he doesn't permit a woman to teach a man. There are other areas in the scriptures where Paul certainly does allow a woman to teach a man. And that takes on various roles. There, it's difficult to say Paul doesn't permit a woman to have authority over a man. Now, there are other parts in Scripture where Paul does allow a woman to have authority over a man. So what's going on here? Well, it's a particular t- kind of teaching and it's a particular kind of authority. Uh, in the original language, uh, the, the, the construction here is recognized by some as a henditis. And I do want to stress that In terms of this being clear, there are some tremendously godly, tremendously clever, tremendously conservative, committed to scripture scholars and pastors on all parts of the spectrum of this debate. My reading on this, my understanding is that Paul is saying, I do not permit a woman to be the authoritative teacher over the household of God. Now, the authoritative teacher is a very narrow role in this book. For example, it's restricted at the moment to Paul, Timothy, and those who Timothy may appoint in chapter 3. Timothy has already ruled out, been sent to rule out a number of men from being authoritative teachers. What is an authoritative teacher? Well, it's different in the time of the church at Ephesus than it is today. You see, when you teach in the church at Ephesus, no one has a New Testament Bible in front of them. They can't do what the Bereans did and test the scriptures to see if the words you're saying are true. So often as Paul would write, or Peter would write, they were writing the New Testament. They spoke with an authority that preachers like me today simply don't have. It kind of looks a little bit more like this. Here's the authority, and I sit under it and give you my best interpretation of what I think it means. And your job is to search the scriptures along with me and see if the things I'm saying are true. There are small occasions where there is an authoritative teacher. Occasions like this one where the scripture is hard to interpret and someone will have to make a call. The authoritative teacher in an Anglican church is the senior minister. And so, what does that mean of what Paul has said here? Well, in our view, it means that a woman certainly can teach amongst a mixed congregation, so long as she possesses the right conviction, character, and competence. However, a woman is, it's not appropriate, in my view, for a woman to be the senior minister of a church. That role is for a man. Not because a woman is not capable, 
but because God's idea, as he expresses through Paul, was that the burden that sometimes comes with leading a church to be prayerfully dependent upon God and to hold the heavy weight of being the authoritative teacher is a service, and not a right, a service that he's designed men for, and only a few men. So what does that mean for us and how do we disagree? Well, we disagree graciously. We understand that this is a difficult part of Scripture to understand. And we respect those who have different views. Sometimes people have suggested that this is the test as to whether you really believe the Bible or not. I don't think so. I think a better test is not whether you think women can preach or not, but how you respond to the leadership and the decisions that they make. Now I've shared with you as my present senior minister, as my former senior minister thought, it was highly appropriate for a woman to teach a man. I, like you, will receive a new senior ministry in time and he may have a different view. My godliness will not be shown in how well I debate him or whether I, whether I uh, challenge him or anything like that. My godliness will be shown in my capacity to submit to him. To understand that in areas that are tricky, God's greater concern is for unity, for generosity of spirit, and for godly submission to the leaders who serve us. As Paul goes on, he gives us a wonderfully important lesson for the household of God. And that lesson is, make sure you serve together. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now we know, because we don't interpret Scripture in a way that's contrary to another part of Scripture, that no woman's getting saved because she had a baby. Salvation is by, by faith alone, by grace alone, by Christ alone. That's all been established. So what's going on? Well, the thing is you can't have a baby by yourself. It takes a man and a woman working together. Paul is trying to illustrate here that in the same way that the problem of sin first occurred when a man and a woman were isolated, the evil one came along and deceived the isolated party and the household of God took a significant blow. He is saying for this household to be healthy, it's not about independence, it's about people People and men and women working together to encourage one another, to guard the good deposit, to pray with one another, and to fulfill their roles. If we will do our roles together and value one another as complementary, then we will do well as members of the household of God. So whether you have a child or you don't have a child, that's not a salvation issue. The issue is that the household of God works when there is interdependence and serving together amongst its people. The household of God is one we enter through grace and mercy, extended by a patient God. Nobody is a guest. Nobody is a tenant. All who come receive full adoption and are therefore given a role. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your immense patience. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We pray that you might be with us as we try to understand difficult passages of Scripture like this. But more so, Lord, we pray that you might be with us as 
we contend for our faith together, not just in what we contend for, but how we contend for it. Father God, we pray that in all things we might see ourselves as a people who only belong because of your immense patience. And so may there be a spirit of humility amongst us and a spirit of unity too. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.